0: Hey, y'all. It's your host, Brandon, here with a little heads up. Do the Work is a show that deals with heavy and, at times, traumatic moments around race and racism. So, if you don't have the emotional space to hear these discussions right now, that's okay. You can always come back to this episode whenever you are ready. We hope that you take care of you. Oh, and one more thing. Sometimes we use adult language in this podcast, so if you got kids nearby, you might want to grab your headphones. All right, now let's get started. You're listening to Do the Work, a podcast that untangles the uncomfortable, offensive, and sometimes downright racist moments that happen in our personal relationships. I'm your host, Brandon Kyle Goodman. These days, we're all spending a lot of our time in isolation. Honey, I'm in my living room talking to y'all right now. But even before the pandemic, our lives had been moving increasingly more and more online. And from social media to dating apps to finding our next job, so much of who we are and how we interact with the world and one another happens online. And that includes how we protest and let our opinions be heard. When it comes to activism, what we say online, or don't say, is important. I experienced this firsthand. Like many Black people, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, I was devastated. Floyd was yet another Black person killed by police. I knew I had to say something. So I made a video and posted it to my Instagram. Because I needed the people who loved me to understand just how painful these experiences are. I've been encouraged to see so many people, my friends, family, even strangers, responding to my posts and speaking out with me against racial inequality. I'm very fortunate to have people close to me who turn up for me, but that's not the case for everyone. For some people of color who speak out and share their pain online, all they hear back from their friends is silence. Now, how do you think that feels? On today's show, Marquia and Elodie and the deafening tone of white silence in a digital world, how to talk to our friends and family about it, and what effective allyship really looks like.
1: If you can't say all Black lives matter, then there's no conversation to be had as far as I'm concerned.
0: Stay with us. And we're back. So first up, let's get to know Marquia. Marquia is a black woman in her early 30s, and she's a Jersey girl. She grew up in Jersey City with her parents and two brothers. Now, in case you don't know, Jersey City is a bustling commuter hub just across the river from Manhattan. As a kid, most of Marquia's education was spent in small, predominantly white private schools. Me too, honey. But her parents wanted her to stay connected to her community.
1: It was really important for them, for us to have experiences outside, Like, so they weren't just raising these three Black children (laughs) only in white spaces where it's very easy to feel othered. Um, So I went to dance school in Jersey City, and it was... Pretty much an an all-black
0: dance school. But when Marquia was in high school, her family moved to Connecticut, and it was an adjustment for her in many ways. So we were
1: the only, like, we were the only black family that lived in the actual town. Everyone else was bused in from, quote-unquote, the inner city. Um, There was two other black students in my class of, like, almost 300.
0: The town Marquia's family moved to is small, less than 12,000 people, and over 90% white. Needless to say, for Marquia, the culture shock was intense, and she did not like living in Connecticut. She would call her mom every day from school crying.
1: Can I get the hell out of here? I'm like, at least in private schools, I think they're like mandated to have some sort of level of diversity. I was like, it's the Wild Wild West over here.
0: And it wasn't just the lack of diversity that made Marquia want to leave. She had to confront some pretty scary stuff while she was living there.
1: So when I went to Connecticut, I was very confused by, <laughs> by what was happening there, which was a lot of um, like white students there, they would do, wear white t-shirts on Wednesdays for White Power Wednesdays.
0: And then one day, things got really, really terrifying.
1: A friend of mine told me that one of the main, like, white power Wednesday kids said that he wanted to, like, at lunch, very casually, like, oh, he wanted to line up all the Black people and test out his guns. I told a guidance counselor, police had to get involved, um... I still had to be in classes with this kid that said this. And he knew I was the person that
0: told told on him. This story is gut-wrenching. The idea of being one of the only Black students in your school in a town that's over 90% white and hearing that someone wants to round you up and shoot you just because of the color of your skin? That is beyond terrifying especially in the world we live in, a world where Black folks are so often targeted by white violence. Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Sandra Bland, the list goes on and on. It is with this context, this personal history, that Marquia abused the world. And how could she not? And it affects how she makes friends. Which is why when Marquia met Elodie, she was skeptical. Elodie is white, and she had a very, very different upbringing than Marquia.
2: I grew up in a neighborhood called Rosedale in Toronto. Um, Mostly a white neighborhood. Um, I went to all-girls school for all of my middle school and high school life. Um, my mom is French-Canadian, so she is from Montreal.
0: After college, Elodie was drawn to the bright lights and fast pace of New York. <laughs> and that is where she met Marquia. It was 2018. Marquia and Elodie were both living in New York City. Both women had just landed jobs at the same Manhattan ad agency. It was like a modern-day mashup of Mad Men and Sex and the City. Sounds fun. (laughs) They started at the agency on the same day. They worked on the same client accounts. Their desks were right next to each other, and they would often eat lunch together. Marquia liked Elodie, but she still felt like she was taking a leap of faith with her new friend.
1: I feel like anytime I've been in work situations with women kind of of that archetype of like blonde white woman they always eventually say something to offend me (laughs) like clearly unconsciously and I never had that experience with her then I was like I think I can actually you know
0: be friends with her for Elodie, she liked Marquia instantly. She gravitated towards her charisma and sense of humor.
2: Marquia is the kind of person who everyone meets and wants to be friends with, kind of right off the bat. She's effusive and fun, and just kind of a cool, a cool lady. <laughs> so we initially bonded over New York restaurants and food and wine, and talked about skincare and fashion and all that good stuff.
0: And honey, that was their friendship. I mean, they were working side by side and having fun together. Until the spring of 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit New York City. And as we all know, everything changed. Both women began working from home. They weren't seeing each other every day or sharing lunches as they had been at the office. Elodie, like so many of us, returned home to ride out the pandemic with her family in Canada. Marquia stayed in New York. I think
2: for me, that was the moment where I really realized how much I loved her and having her in my life because I, I, I missed her a lot and and I realized how much she really brightened my days.
0: Now, over the next few months, things changed uh, even more. Marquia landed a new job. Yes, honey. And Elodie went back to school to pursue her master's degree. Yeah, incredible, right? Leaving the agency that tied them together could have spelled the end of their relationship. But they really got along, and they wanted to be in each other's lives. So they kept things going.
2: We started texting a bit more and FaceTiming sometimes, and and that was a really nice development in our relationship. Um, we sort of have, have continued our friendship, and and I think... Just by virtue of no longer working together, inevitably our our relationship has grown beyond this work friendship.
0: They had taken their relationship from work lives to true friends. But then something happened. Something that shook the foundation of their friendship. First, a white woman walking her dog in Central Park put a black bird watcher's life at risk. She called the cops and said he'd threaten her. He hadn't. Then hours later, in Minneapolis, George Floyd was killed by police. For Marcia, for me, for black people all across this country, it was a dark and painful time. It is a dark and painful time. It was also the first big test in her relationship with Elodie. Marcia was understandably mad and upset. So she did what many of us do. She went on social media to speak out. And she had an eye on her white friends to see if they were speaking up or staying silent. She wanted to see solidarity from the people in her life.
1: This is not the time to be business as usual. If you can watch the news and see this and can still go on about your normal life and not only just go on about your normal life, like post about it, like to me, that's almost like a slap in the face. Cause it's like, okay, you are able to like have a carefree weekend where you don't have to think about this. I don't have that luxury.
0: So while all this was going down, how did Elodie respond? Well, it wasn't cute y'all.
1: Um, I noticed her silence pretty immediately because she would, like, post a lot of, like, artful, like, scenic things. And I was like, okay, well, George Floyd's body's not even cold yet, so I don't really want to see your Aperol spritz.
0: Listen, let me level with you. I know, I know social media is not the be-all, end-all in life. But I also know that it's important to feel seen and respected by my friends and the people I'm close to. You see, for Black folks, we've been feeling this pain for far too long. And to see these racist events happen over and over again is too much to bear. And then to see our white friends respond to our trauma with silence, is like a slap in the face. Marquia had expected her friend, who she had worked alongside every day and would FaceTime and text and hang out with, to do something. I was like, girl,
1: no black square? Not even that? That was the baseline.
0: She had hit her limit. Marquia unfollowed Elodie on Instagram. And Elodie noticed.
2: The moment that I noticed that she had unfollowed me, it was it was a moment of sadness. It was a moment of feeling extremely guilty that I had been so ignorant of of the issue, um, and and had not understood that it was critical that I have a voice and and speak out about it. In my head, the the reason was sort of. Do, do I have a voice in this issue? Should I have a voice in this issue? I don't know what I'm going to do.
0: Now, Elodie makes a good point. When a movement like Black Lives Matter isn't about you personally, when is it appropriate to speak up? And what should you be saying? What does effective social media activism actually look like? And for Markeia and Elodie, would they be able to repair their friendship? All of that after the break.
3: You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop, wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host, created it, been doing it for seven years.
0: We're back. So before we bring Marquia and Elodie together to talk about what went down in their friendship and whether they were able to work things out, I want to zoom out. Now, there's been some debate about what social media activism can really accomplish. Some folks say that changing your avatar to a black square doesn't really do anything or maybe even harms the movement. I have my own thoughts about that, and we'll jump into that later. But first, I wanted to hear from someone who actually studies this. So my producers called up Dean Freelon to find out. Dean is a professor at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And his research focuses on political expression through digital media. We started by asking him to explain the basics. You see, there are a lot of terms folks like to throw around when it comes to online activism, and those seemingly small actions that we take, like uh, changing our profile pics to support a movement, those actions are actually called certain things by researchers like Dean. And you know what? I'm going to let him explain.
4: Clicktivism refers to various types of what we call low-cost activism, uh, which include things like uh, the social media actions that we uh, take part in every day, retweeting, sharing hashtags, liking posts, changing your profile picture or your background picture or elements of your uh, social media bio. All of these fit into the clicktivism or more pejoratively slacktivism bucket
0: okay, well, I just learned something new. I've definitely been involved in some clicktivism. And if you're listening to this show, you probably have too. But there's another term Dean wanted to point out, one that you may be more familiar with.
4: Hashtag activism is really a broader term that refers to the promotion of various social causes uh, through the distinctive branding of hashtags. And so we all know what a hashtag is. And that's something that, of course, can move between social media platforms, whether you're talking about Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or wherever. And, of course, hashtag campaigns, most of the more successful ones do have some sort of offline component. Of course, Black Lives Matter is uh, probably the most uh, well-known case of that.
0: Yes, I think we all know that hashtag well. And if you didn't know it before this summer, you probably heard about it this past June on Blackout Tuesday, when those black squares started popping up all over social media. Now, for those of you who don't know, Blackout Tuesday was created by Jamila Thomas and Brianna A. Jemine, two black women in the music industry. Their original idea was to disrupt their industry, one that profits from the art of black folks, but in their minds, isn't working to protect the lives of Black folks. And I would agree with that. But then, as often happens on social media, Blackout Tuesday turned into so much more. Everyone from celebrities to corporations started posting Black squares and going silent online for the day in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, there was some criticism, for one, the flood of black squares drowned out other BLM posts that might serve as an online resource for activists. And I mean, yes, it was great to see so many people turn up, but for some people of color, it seemed surface level and not an effective or genuine form of activism. And honestly, I, I would agree with this. So, okay, here's what I would call a gray area. On one hand, having so many people want to scream Black Lives Matter is comforting. But on the other hand, we have to explore and acknowledge the impact of the action, the action being posting a black square. For most people, there was no research about what the black square meant or its original intention created by Jamila and Brianna. So because people didn't explore but instead got caught in their white urgency, they unintentionally co-opted a campaign which ended up causing more harm because now those of us looking for information and relying on social media to connect with one another so we can figure out where protests are happening, where to donate, how to show up, physically show up and support, we can't get that information because all there are are black squares. Also, for many, the Black Square was posted to look like you were involved in the conversation, as opposed to really sitting down, doing the work, and critically thinking about what Black people need. If you were to really sit down and think about how to protect, amplify, and honor Black lives, you would know immediately that a Black Square neither protects, amplifies, or honors a Black life. Given the controversy, I wanted to hear what Dean had to say about those black squares and what effect hashtag activism in general can have on a movement.
4: So what I would encourage people to do is to think about this from an aggregate perspective. So don't just look at what you do or what one person does. Think about all of these actions collectively and what that means with respect to the uh, support that the movement in question is garnering. Uh, especially when you're talking about people who are not in the uh, group that's being affected. What I remind people when I talk about this is that before social media, before the internet, uh, the only way that a a social activist movement could really reach large uh, publics or large audiences was to go through the mainstream media. And so uh, social media really provides a way for activists to kind of go around uh, mainstream media. Uh, to reach people that they otherwise would have had a lot of difficulty doing, Um, especially when you're talking about uh, people that are geographically distant from where the protest originates.
0: So when folks in Minneapolis started to throw up posts in support of George Floyd, the protest message spread far beyond that city to people like me out in Los Angeles and probably you too. And this has a big impact beyond platforms like Instagram or
4: Twitter. It also provides a means of reaching the media itself. So uh, the, the the basic process is, you know, a lot of uh, uh, attention gets paid to something on social media that in turn gets the attention of um, journalists, members of mass media, and then they in turn spread that to people who are not necessarily on that social media platform. Um, and so I think that the visibility that, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or uh, millions of tiny acts of activism can bestow upon a movement uh, can be quite impactful. And beyond raising visibility, those black squares
0: did signal something else, something really
4: important. Engaging in uh, clicktivist activism helps to signify to your friends and neighbors and people that you know uh, that you're sympathetic to a cause that affects them deeply. Right? And so there's been less uh, research on that, but I can certainly speak to that personally. You know, uh, the, the sort of offline equivalent of clicktivism is posting a yard sign, right? So, you know, it feels kind of nice to ride to the neighborhood and see uh, that there are yard signs up that say that they support the movement that uh, um, affects you directly. And so uh, I think that's another uh, way that um, these kinds of things can have an impact be- because at the same time that your clicktivism is lifting this movement uh, to prominence nationally and internationally, I think it's also true that people who follow you or your friends on social media are also paying attention to see whether you are going to be uh, sort of publicly declaring your support for, uh, for this movement.
0: Huh. I hadn't thought of a social media post as like a modern day yard sign. But I do like the metaphor. And it's what Marquia needed to see from Elodie. She wanted Elodie to put up a sign showing her support for a movement that matters to Marquia. And when Elodie didn't, Marquia felt let down by Elodie's silence. Okay, so now that Dean Freelon has shed some valuable light on this conversation, I wanted to bring in our in-house educator, Debbie Irving. She's the author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. I started by asking Debbie to define white silence for us.
5: White silence is when uh, white people do not speak up in the face of injustice. Mm. And... It It's hard to convey how damaging it is. Uh, there are really only two modes when we're talking about any system of oppression. Right now we're talking about racism. You're either uh, in racism mode or anti-racism mode. And to be in anti-racism mode, you need to be um, able to speak both to yourself, this is wrong and I'm going to do something, say something, and you need to be able to say that out loud. Um, and the silence has the effect of aiding and abetting the racist. Yes. There is no neutral yes.
0: in racism, racism mode or anti-racism mode. That's literally it. Um, and as a black person, I will just add that the silence to me is harmful because whether we like it or not, as our society is set up right now, white people are in power, uh, and so. I think a lot of us that are, you know, black and people of color and indigenous who are educators or activists are very much aware that we need the support of white people to help change things. So anyone that is silent is very loudly saying they're not invested or they don't have time or they don't really think it's a big deal. Uh, And that is, um, that's painful It's dangerous, but it's also just on a personal level for Marquia and Elodie, just understanding Marquia's point of it. That's devastating. So now I want to ask you, Debbie, why do you think that white folks in Elodie's position don't speak up?
5: So if I think... If I think that white is the normal race and racism belongs just to black and brown people, those poor people who just kind of can't figure their lives out and keep finding themselves in those neighborhoods that I see Mm -hmm. on TV, then when those people have those problems, what's my role? Uh Once I see that the entire United States is founded on a racial caste system, I am in that system. I don't want to live in a caste system. I'm picking that level playing field. I'm picking that world that f- world of freedom. That's the world I'm fighting for. I'm not just doing this for you, Brandon. Yeah. I'm doing this for me. I'm going to fight for the world that I Which want to is, live again, in, Which is, again, where too.
0: all these conversations, like, I didn't know, I, I, was, I would always say that, um, people always say, I didn't know that you experienced racism, or I didn't know that you felt pain like this. It's like, Oh, cause you're not aware that we're in a racial world. <laughs> Clearly, that's what that at base is like. Or you haven't accepted that you know that it, there that exists, but you haven't accepted that you are part of that racial world. So of course, your black friend, or your Asian friend, or your Latinx friend is also part of the racial world and are having a shitty experience inside of it.
5: Hmm. And the supporting narrative for the non-racial world is that we're all just individuals. Right. You know, we're just using those bootstraps, and we're making it or we're not, and we have good attitudes or we don't. And, um, Brandon, you have such a good attitude. I didn't think someone like you would experience racism. (sighs) Like, that's where that's coming from. And I think it comes from, and I'm sure I've been this person um, along my my journey of Mm -hmm. waking up, like, oh, please don't see me as one of those bad white people. I want to be one of the good white people. And I'm not yet um, really understanding that I'm fighting for the world I want to live in. And therefore, my voice is necessary.
0: We'll hear more from Debbie later in the show. Up next, Marquia and Elodie talk about the moment that broke their friendship. And we find out if they were able to put the pieces back together. Stay with us. Hey y'all, before we jump back into our episode, I want to invite you to be part of our show. If you want to be a guest on this podcast, email us your story at do the work at 3 uncanny 4. Dot .com with the number spelled out. That's do the work at 3 uncanny 4.com and tell us your story. I can't wait to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show. We're back. Did y'all miss me? <laughs> okay, well before we bring Elodie and Marquia together to talk things out, I want to quickly remind you of where we're at in their story. Marquia and Elodie had been building a great friendship over the last two years, but their relationship hit a roadblock after George Floyd was killed. Protests erupted around the world, and Elodie stayed silent. Marquia was hurt, so she unfollowed Elodie on social media. When Elodie saw that she was no longer connected to Marquia on Instagram, she knew something was really wrong and that their friendship was on the line. So, she decided to send her a message.
2: And I knew that this text that I was going to send was going to matter in our relationship, and the way that I presented myself was really going to matter.
0: It was a pivotal moment in their friendship, so you know we had to bring them together to talk about it. In September, my producers called up Marquia and Elodie for a video chat. Elodie had come back from Canada in August and was at her apartment in New York. When we connected with her, she had just finished working out, get it girl, and her blonde hair was tied back in a beautiful ponytail. Marquia had spent that day working from home in her Brooklyn apartment. Her long, gorgeous black braids hung down past her shoulders. We wanted to dive into that moment from this summer. The week she unfollowed Elodie, Marquia said she had been hearing from a lot of folks, including a lot of her white friends. Many of Marquia's friends reached out to offer their support after George Floyd's murder. But she was frustrated because the messages she was getting just felt hollow.
1: I was getting a lot of I'm so sorry's and I was like, why the fuck are you sorry?
0: Like,
1: <laughs> like to me, I'm like, sorry about what? Like. You should be feeling upset. You should be feeling angry.
0: And Marquia wasn't alone in this. After George Floyd's murder, there were reports of white folks Venmoing their black friends as some kind of twisted form of support. Honey, I can't tell you how many Venmos I got for $10. Now, what am I going to do with $10? That's the real question. So I know y'all are wondering what did Elodie do? Well, at first, she reached out to Marquia with an, I miss you, girly type of text to check in and see how Marquia was doing. Marquia did not respond. And that could have been it. But Elodie didn't give up. And she knew she had to step up her game if she wanted to repair her friendship with Marquia. So she called in reinforcements.
2: I ended up reaching out to a friend and sort of saying, here's the situation. This is my background with Marquia. This is what happened. This is what I think I'm going to say. Can you sort of help me understand how I can phrase this better? Because I I didn't want to hurt Markia more than I already had by saying something that came off tone deaf. Mar- I don't know if even knows that I
1: not to like interject. I didn't know that. She like phoned a friend on the on the
0: text. So what did that text say? Well, you know what? I'll let Elodie tell you.
2: I said, hi, I just want to say that I know I took too long to post on social media about where I stand on racial justice, and I feel terrible at the thought that that might have hurt you and made you think I don't support you. I rarely post Instagram stories, so I justified it by really doing the work at home, listening to podcasts, reading books, and having conversations with friends and family while contemplating how I could involve myself in the conversation online. But I then realized that silence at a time like this is hurtful, and that even if I wasn't prepared to say the exact right thing or didn't fully understand everything yet, it was important to take a stand early on, especially for my friends and community to know where my support is. I've been posting every day since I realized this, and after all the learning I've done this past week, I really have become passionate about being part of the change. I would love to talk to you, give you space, or support you in any way I can. I value our friendship so much, and I know you're hurting right now, so I just want to say I'm sorry if I contributed to that.
0: Elodie's message was warm and honest, way different from the other texts Marquia was getting. But was it enough for Marquia to continue the friendship?
1: It felt like a genuine apology. It was very clear to me, like, it was like, okay, this is what I did. This is what I'm acknowledging that I did. This is why I know that you're upset, probably. And this is what I've been doing since that happened um, and what I plan to do moving forward. Um, So it was very clear, like, the intention, the ownership, and the accountability. And I think of the messages that I received really stood out to me because it was... It was taking accountability and then talking about the steps towards effective allyship.
0: Real and effective allyship. That's what Marquia needed from Elodie during those difficult days and weeks. But I wanted to know whether she was still living up to that promise. Well, Elodie's been doing a lot of work, and as a Canadian, she had to start by learning about the deep roots of racism here in the United States.
2: This conversation was clearly rooted in systemic problems in American history. Um, So the first thing I did was just starting to learn about that. I listened to 1619 was one of the first things that just taught me the basics of the history, which I just straight up didn't know was not taught in school. Um, I my friends from school and I started a book club. So we read The New Jim Crow. Um, We read uh, Pieces of White Fragility. Um, We're reading The Bluest Eye right now. And we meet every couple of weeks and just have conversations. And I have a couple of friends who are BIPOC and then uh, several who are white. So it's a really interesting conversation to have with that group of people. Um, and really enlightening. Um, I think one of the one of the most interesting things that I did um, was diversifying my Instagram feed, following more people of color um, has been a
1: great learning for me. Elodie just explained like what she's been doing. And I think another good thing is like, she's just doing it. She doesn't need to tell me that she's reading The Bluest Eye. I was like, when she said that, I was like, oh damn, okay book i didn't know that she was doing that that's that's what the the work is it's like if you want to protect black lives or you care about them it's like you need to talk to your white counterparts and like open their eyes to things and like opening their eyes doesn't have to be like look at this per this black person being brutalized by police as like the absolute wrong thing you should be doing it should be like look at this black artist look at this book that is about like. Black people experiencing regular things, and it's about like showing Black people just existing in a regular way to humanize the situation.
0: Marquia makes a good point. You know, so much of the conversation online these days about Black lives is centered around violence against Black lives. But showing up for Black lives isn't just about focusing on pain. It's also about celebrating Blackness, amplifying, honoring, reveling in the glory that is Blackness in all its forms. And that's another way that Elodie has been becoming a better ally.
2: You know, I think you realize that there's all of this great art out there that's produced by people of color that that you hadn't even looked for and seen before. And and you're actually only enriching your own life by opening your eyes to that stuff. Um, and, And consequently also... Understanding another perspective and being able to have a more educated conversation about race as a whole and, and being a better ally and being a better friend and being just probably a, a better, smarter human being.
0: And along with the education comes action. Since that incident back in June, Marquia has forgiven Elodie because Elodie has shown that she is committed to mending their friendship and learning how to be anti-racist. Today, they are back to being good friends, talking and texting regularly, swapping skincare tips like they did when they were back in the office. I'm decolonizing my
1: beauty routine. If
2: you just follow Marquia on Instagram, you can see she has like... I go, I go to it regularly when I'm like, I need a
1: toner. I got you on all the tea.
0: Yes, honey, give me that tea. Okay, so now let's talk about the question. I hope a lot of y'all are thinking about what you can do with the things you're learning. I know some of you may not know where to start or what to say, so before we go, I'm bringing back Debbie Irving, our in-house educator who has done the work and continues to do the work in her own life. She's going to share some advice. She says the important thing is to just start. Start speaking out.
5: And, and you don't have to sound smart even. Like, you can just sound yes. real. So You know, so to say, um, you know, we're talking specifically here about the weeks, uh, the days and weeks following the brutal public murder of George Floyd, um, you know, to just say something like, uh, I'm horrified. I don't even quite know what to say. I just want everybody on my Facebook page, Mm -hmm. if you're on Facebook, to know that this isn't okay with me. This isn't the world I want to live in. And, um, and I'm going to commit to speaking up and taking action. I don't even know what that looks like yet. And I'm afraid and I'm going to do it anyway. Yes.
0: yes. How many people, so how many name, people could relate to that immediately?
5: Yes. If I read that yes. from
0: one of my friends, I would, it's, it's not about like, oh, you solved it. It's just is like, okay, Debbie's in my corner. And that means a lot. Ultimately, I think that's the breakdown Uh here between Marquia and Elodie is like, are you in my corner or are you not? Are you safe? Or are you one of these people who, if there's a knee on my neck, you're just going to watch or walk away. And that's why the the speaking up uh, is so also so important on these personal levels. Do the Work is a Three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, Brandon Kyle Goodman. Our in-house educator is Debbie Irving. Our senior editor is Amy Eason. Our senior producer is TJ Raphael. Our associate producers are Rahima Nasa and Sharina Ong. Catherine Shoemaker is our development producer, and Jenny Kim is our production manager. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. We had additional production help on this episode from Lena Richards. Special thanks to Adam Davidson and Nuna Sharafady. The show was mixed by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. Ava Amabehi is our fact checker, and Elishaba Ituk created the theme. If you like the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. And hey, why not leave a rating and a comment while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Or better yet, tell somebody about us, honey. And if you want to have your own story featured on the show, email us at at 3 uncanny 4com That's with the numbers spelled out. So, Do the work at 3uncanny4.com. I hope y'all are taking care of yourselves as we deal with these heavy subjects. One self-care tip for me is to watch a favorite throwback show. You know, just to remind you of simpler times. Right now, I am watching Living Single every single night. It is one of my favorite shows. And whenever I watch it, it just makes me feel... Ah, a little bit of peace, a little bit of calmness. So that's my tip today. Oh, and one more thing. We're putting some handy resources on our website in case y'all want to do some reading up on the topics we talk about in the show. So you can find that at dotheworkpod.com. For 3 Uncanny 4, I'm Brandon Kyle Goodman. Until next time, you can find me on the gram at Brandon K. Good. Thanks for listening.